uh, we do have, like I said, the entire chapter of Hebrews chapter 7. We are, we're getting back into our study in the book of Hebrews. So I want to invite Noah Sanders up, because he has a much better voice than I do, to read this long passage. And so uh, I'm going to invite him up to read Hebrews chapter 7 for us as we get back into the middle of this great study. So uh, stand with us as we give attention to the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to Abraham the patriarch and gave him a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, so these they are also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the tithes from Ab that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there be for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there was a change in priesthood, there is a necessary change in law as well. For the one whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that the tribe Moses, and said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of his weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save the uttermost who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make an intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did not once for all he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word 
of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is God's word. Right, you got all that right? Makes perfect sense? All right, let's pray together. Father, we come to you. Uh, We enter before you, knowing that you hear us, not based on anything that we have done, anything that we have accomplished, anything that we can do. We enter before you only because of our perfect high priest, only because of Jesus, our great intercessor. So I do pray that as we wade through this heavy text, something that can be pretty confusing to us as we read it here in this day, I just pray that you would awaken our hearts to see things about Jesus that maybe we have neglected, to see aspects of who you are that will be an anchor to our soul. I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to see and believe in who you are and what you have done for us. So I pray that you'd guide us through this text, guide me in my words to be able to hopefully be able to bring clarity to some confusing things and to bring hope where we need it. So we commit this time into your hands, let your word go forth and accomplish its purposes. And it's in the beautiful and glorious name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. Let me start by asking you, how many of you know the name David Tyree? Anybody? We got a few, a few, a handful in here, Most, mostly some fellows it looks like. Um, if you don't know David Tyree, that's all right, not many people do. Um, unless you're an avid football fan. David Tyree was an NFL football player. He played for the New York Giants for about seven years. And uh, he was actually mostly a special teams player. He he was known for just, you know, tackling guys on kickoffs and punts. But uh, he did, you know, his his role on the team was also as a wide receiver. He was a third or fourth string wide receiver that just kind of barely made the field from time to time. he didn't have a Hall of Fame career. I think throughout his seven years, he had maybe a total of 50 receptions, which for a receiver isn't very much. But there was a moment where David Tyree made an incredible impact in the NFL. It was back in Super Bowl 42, where the, uh, the Giants were playing at that time the undefeated Patriots. And <laughs> well done, well done. Uh, yes. And. Uh, the score at the time, late in the game, was uh, 10 to 14, the Giants were down. And there was uh, about a minute and 15 seconds left on the clock. And the Giants had the ball, they were still on their side of the field, it wasn't looking good for them. Um, the Patriots had a great defense, things were, things, you know, they, they needed a miracle to happen. It got down to third and five, and the ball is snapped. Eli Manning, it looks for sure that he is going to get sacked right away. He has about three defenders on him. Somehow he kind of comes out of the pile, rolls out, and just throws up a prayer of a pass about 30 yards down the field. And David Tyree, the special teams player, is there on the field in this, in this key moment. And he jumps up to catch this ball with Rodney Harrison, this all-pro defender, draped all over him. And he somehow makes the most incredible catch where he takes and he gets the ball and pins it to the side of his helmet. I think I have a picture. If, if, yep, right here. This is the helmet catch. Pins it to the side of his helmet, goes down to the ground, and keeps it from with, just within inches of, of hitting the turf. And makes this incredible catch. Just a few 
plays later, the Giants go on to score, take the lead, and they win Super Bowl 42, defeating the undefeated, cheating Patriots. Right. <laughs> yep. And for all of us, at least keeping one more ring off of Tom Brady's hand. So, yeah. But, uh, but David Tyree was a very insignificant football player. Um, that was actually the last catch he ever caught in an NFL game. He showed up, had this amazing impact, then he disappeared, never to be known again. But in that moment, he showed up, and he had such an incredible impact on both that game and on NFL history, leaving us with one of the most iconic catches ever to be made in the Super Bowl and really in, the, in an NFL game. And today, in our passage, we encounter a figure like that. Throughout history, we see figures like this who come up just for a moment out of nowhere, have an amazing impact, and then fade away. And today in our passage, we highlight this Old Testament character who many of us probably don't really know. Especially if you're new to church, you probably have never heard of this one. He's not the one that gets you know, highlighted in children's you know, classes and in Bible stories. It's this figure that really only has three verses dedicated to him, far back buried in an obscure chapter in Genesis. And yet, the writer of Hebrews here draws him out and gives us this incredible argument and this picture that reveals to us something in, in, invaluable and essential and important to who we understand Jesus to be. And so we're going to walk through Hebrews 7 and look at this unlikely and, and obscure figure named Melchizedek. But as we're just now getting back into the book of Hebrews, we need to remember where we've come. We've been walking through this book you know, since this last fall, we took a break over the Advent season. But what we've, what we've seen is that the author here is encouraging Christians over and over again to persevere in their faith, to not be tempted to go back to Jewish religion and dependence upon other traditions and other religious observance, but he's rather calling them to see that Jesus is better than all of the Old Testament types, all the Old Testament figures. He comes as the fulfillment of those things. So don't turn away from Him. And so we've seen how Jesus is superior to the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's better than Joshua because he gives us a longer and an eternal rest. And a theme that's been recurring is that he has come as our great high priest. And what we found in the book of Hebrews is that this book is deeply rooted in the Old Testament. It's, it's, it's based on, on ancient Jewish thought, practice, and understanding. And so if we don't understand our Old Testament, or if we're not at least willing to try to make the connections and do the work to see these things, then we're going to actually miss a lot of what this book is trying to tell us. And this text is no different. We encounter this strange figure. We were almost introduced to him back in chapter 5, but then he felt like his audience wasn't quite ready for that, so chapter 6 kind of came in and interrupted the whole flow of thought with this warning passage, encouraging them to go on to maturity, to, to, to really hold fast to their faith and not fall away. But throughout the whole first half of the book, this theme of the priesthood of Jesus has been recurring. It started all the way, it was introduced in chapter 2, verse 17, where it said that Jesus had to be made like his brothers so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Then in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, it says, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. 
Then in chapter 4, verse 14, it says, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And then in chapter 5, verse 10, it says that, that, that Jesus was made perfect and He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And before he unpacked Melchizedek, he interrupted with this whole parenthetical chapter of, of chapter 6. And now chapter 7 picks back up. Right at the end of chapter 6, he said, Jesus has gone before us into the curtain, this temple language, into the most holy place. He's, he's gone before us, having become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so now, in chapter 7, he's going to go further and unpack who this Melchizedek figure is. But as you sit here this morning, you may be already starting to roll your eyes saying, who cares? Who cares about Melchizedek? Like, maybe this is good for like, some kind of Bible trivia night or if you, you know, for the Bible nerds in here who kind of like this kind of stuff. But really, for my, like, why does this matter? Like, like why are we going to wade through this whole thing? I didn't understand a thing that Noah read a few minutes ago. Um, and that's a valid question. This is, this is a tough passage to kind of put together and, 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 and understand. The author is assuming things about his reader, that they have a deep understanding of their Old Testament. They, 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 they understand what happened in Genesis with Abraham. They, that, that they understand Psalm 110 and this prophecy that was, that was spoken by David of this messianic figure to come. And so we're going to have to do work to try to pull these things together, but I think it's worth it for us to, to give our attention to see how the Bible comes together in this grand story, this big narrative that's unfolding this redemptive plan of God. And as we do that, we begin to see these images of Jesus that have massive significance in our lives. And we, we, we don't need to become Christians who just kind of need our verse for the day, that it's kind of just this encouraging phrase but we need a Bible story that shapes our lives. We need a story and a, a story and a narrative of redemption in, in which we, we see that God has invited us into. And so we're going to try to do our work to, to walk through this text. I'm going to do it through three points. I don't know why I always end up with three points. It's just how it works out. I commend Aaron last week for doing like a 12-point sermon or whatever, so good work. So if he can do that, I think we can get through three points this morning. Um, we're going to first look in verses 1 through 10 at the historical importance of Melchizedek. Then in verses 11 to 28, we're going to see the theological significance of Melchizedek. And then in my last time, bit of time, point three, I want to try to just draw out the personal relevance of Melchizedek for us. So let's dive in here. We start by looking at the historical importance of Melchizedek. Who is this man? The writer gives us just a brief bio on him here in the first couple verses. Verses 1 and 2, it says, This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So you know what's going on, right? Everybody know what the slaughter of the kings is? No, probably not. So what he's doing is he's really just summarizing Genesis chapter 14. We preached on that a few years ago, so if you want, you can find that online, and I commend you to go and listen to that sermon on Genesis 13 and 14. But back in Genesis 14, we, we, we see in that chapter that there was this battle amidst the local rulers, the kings of Canaan. And there was this, this constant warring and battling taking place amongst the leaders in those areas. These were small kingdoms. Well, in this battle, Abraham's nephew, Lot, had been living in the city of Sodom. 
and this city is taken over and conquered by these other kings. And Lot is captured by them and hauled off with them. Abraham hears about it, and so he wants to, wants to do something. So he gathers this, this small group, 300-plus militia men, and they chase after this, this army that's just conquered Sodom and captured Lot. He catches up to them. They defeat them. They conquer this army, and Abraham rescues his nephew Lot. They take the spoils of war, and they head back home. And on their way back, Genesis 14 recounts this random story where this man, Melchizedek, comes out and meets Abraham. He comes out with a feast with, with bread and wine and, 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 and offers it to him. And then he pronounces a blessing over Abraham. And then in return, Abraham offers him a tenth of, of all the things that they, had just, that they had just reclaimed in the battle. He offers him a tithe to this, this man. And that's it. Three verses. He shows up, has this little interaction, and then he disappears. We never hear from him again. In Genesis, and the Pentateuch, not until way later does his name finally show up in a small psalm written by David in Psalm 110. If this was a movie scene, Melchizedek would be nothing more than just an extra in the background, just kind of a guy that shows up, seemingly insignificant. It's kind of a strange tale as you read it in the, in the narrative there. But the text does offer a few details to us that the writer of Hebrews draws out as very significant as historically important for us. And so, in verses 1 to 2, he first highlights the uniqueness of his titles. The uniqueness of his titles. He says, he is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. What does he mean by that? Well, the, the, the word Melchizedek is really just a transliteration of this Hebrew word, which is actually two Hebrew words who are, that are put together. Melech is the word for king, and Zedek is the word for righteousness. He is the king of righteousness, which is an interesting title. What would a, what would a king that rules by righteousness look like? The other title that he is given is that he is king of Salem. Salem is the location in which, in, in Genesis, in, under, over which he rules. We believe that this city is actually what later becomes known as Jerusalem. So he is the king of Jerusalem before Jerusalem was established. You've got to realize this is, this is just the beginning of Abraham's, Abraham's journeys. Israel and monarchy and all of that comes way later. This is, this is way before that. So Jerusalem was, was, was being lived in by other, other people before that time. And this is the, the king of Salem, which also means peace, shalom. So he is also a king of peace, a king of righteousness and a king of peace. The unique, unique titles, which speaks something about this one. Then the other thing that is described about him, which should be really shocking, especially for a Jew who knew their law, is also says that he is priest of God Most High. Now, we're not really well-versed in the world of priests and kings, right? Unless maybe you played Dungeons and Dragons on the weekends. But the, to, to be a, a king meant that you weren't a priest, and to be a priest meant that you weren't a king. Priests and kings did not go together, especially under the Mosaic Law. That's not how, they, how it worked. So for this man to be both a king and a priest puts him in a very unique place. 
And the writer is drawing these things out for us. The next historical importance that we see here is the absence of expected details. He draws on the absence of expected details for us. He says that he is without father or mother. Okay? That's odd. So, so what does that mean? Some have, some have seen this language as indicating that what we have here is not just a man, but a divine being. Some have said, well, this, this must therefore be a, a kind of pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. The technical term for that is a Christophany, that Jesus is actually showing up in the person of Melchizedek back here. It could be the case, but based on the text, I, I, I don't think that's, that's what's going on. I don't think that's what we have. I think that the text more naturally supports the view that what we have going on is, is, is an understanding of, of how Melchizedek shows up in the Genesis text is being understood as a type of Christ. What do we mean by a type? A type is, is something like a, a non-spoken prophecy. It's a person or a place that, that oftentimes has a recurring pattern in the Bible that points towards something else that has a greater, truer fulfillment to come. And so the writer of Hebrews is reading both David in Psalm 110 and Genesis 14 and seeing this Melchizedek figure as a type. And so the things that we read about him are telling us aspects that are going to later be fulfilled by Jesus. And so it's not as though the writer is making a literal claim here as though uh, you know, he, he didn't literally have a father or mother. But he's drawing on the absence of expected details in the text. Which, if, which basically it's an argument from silence. Which, if you know Genesis, it means it's a pretty good argument. Because if you've read your Old Testament very much, you know that you, you regularly will encounter these long lists of genealogies. The Old Testament is filled with these lists of genealogies. Maybe some of you have encountered those. Maybe some of you are trying to read through your Bible this year. And you've already run into some of these. And maybe some, for some, it's like, oh, those are like really boring. Others, maybe you get to that and it's kind of nice because it feels like a cheat day because you can just kind of like skim through it and look over it really quickly. Like we, because for us, like who cares who beget who and who, who beget who? But, but if there's an important figure in the Old Testament, his lineage is listed. We know where he comes from. We know why he has a significant place in Israel's history. But Melchizedek, as he shows up in Genesis, has no lineage. He just shows up out of nowhere. We don't know his father. We don't know who his sons are. And so what this tells us, and now he's being understood, is meaning that it's not his family line that determines his significance. It's something else. It's who he is, his very being. It goes on to say that he has neither beginning of days nor end of life. He has no birth and he has no death certificate. Not, that, not, not, not literally saying he wasn't born or didn't actually die as a, as, a, as a literal human historical king, but as those details are very important for all the other patriarchs, we even know where some of them were buried. You know, when they died, those things are noted, they are, they are, they are specified, but for this one to not have those details listed, it serves then for us as an image, an image of the one, of one who has always been, one who lives forever. So do you see how he's drawing out this picture of this one who is going to point towards someone else? And he goes on and, and explicitly says, 
in all of these ways, he is resembling the Son of God and therefore continuing as a priest forever. He's drawing on this figure of, of, of Melchizedek buried in our Old Testament and drawing out these aspects that we read about him that tell us something about what Jesus is going to be for us. This is further declared in verses 4 to 10, where we see this inverted interaction. The interaction between Abraham and Melchizedek is, is not what we would expect either. So he says, let me just show you how great this Melchizedek guy is. Let's, let's, let's consider how awesome he must have been because of what happens. He says, Abraham, the patriarch, the most prestigious Israelite, the OG of Israel, he paid tithes to this man. So he must have been pretty cool if he recognized his position as priest and king by giving him the honor of this tithe, then he must have been something. Then he goes on in this kind of complicated argument to say that, that, that priests, under the law, they came from the tribe of Levi. They were the descendants of Abraham. And they would actually collect tithes from the people. That's how it worked. The tribe of Levi was to be supported from the other tribes. That's how the law set it up. So they could request tithes from, the, uh, from their brothers, from the other tribes. But Melchizedek, he wasn't a Levite. So what grounds did he have to, to receive or, or request a tithe from, from Abraham? We don't know where he came from. And yet, Levi's great-great-great-great-granddaddy paid him a tithe. And so he says, well, in a sense, you could even say that Levi himself paid a tithe to Melchizedek because... The text has this weird phrase, because he was still in his loins, meaning he, he, he was descended from him. There's kind of this, this family connection that's being drawn out, saying the whole, the whole Levitical line of priests, in a sense, started off by paying, paying tithes to a, a different priest. That's how great this one was. And then furthermore, to, to ratchet it up even more, he says that Melchizedek was the one who spoke a blessing over Abraham, not the other way around. But Abraham was the one who had received the promises, right? Abraham was, was the one who God was going to bless, and, and through him, he was going to bless all the other nations. So you would expect that Abraham's the one who would bless Melchizedek. But, but it's known that, 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 that the, the superior blesses the inferior. And so Melchizedek, speaking a blessing over Abraham, means that he is a figure who is greater, more significant, more important than even Abraham. And so what's his whole point here? Like, what's he trying to show us? These are some neat Old Testament details. But his, his whole point in drawing all of this out is to say that this historical figure represents the type of priesthood to which Jesus belongs. And this obscure historical figure therefore foreshadows, points towards the role that Jesus has fulfilled for us. And so to make more sense of this, we have to press on to see how he then draws out the theological significance of Melchizedek, right? Hanging with me? If you need a cup of coffee, go and grab one. We're still rolling here. But it's awesome how he draws this out. And he starts by showing through Melchizedek the theological significance, how he reveals the deficiency of the Levitical priesthood in verses 11 through 19. And he poses this question, he says, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priest, through the line of Aaron, 
then what need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? Well, the answer, of course, is none. If that was true, then there, there would no, be no other need for another priest to come. Because once you have a perfect priesthood, you don't need any other one. It's perfect, right? It's a, it's a simple, logical argument. You know, it's kind of like with our phones. You know, every, every year Apple comes out with a new phone. But every year they market it as if it is the best thing. Like it is the phone to end all phones. You know, iPhone 10, you can open it with your face or whatever, and it's, it's, it's got everything that you will ever need. It's perfect. That's how they, they market it. And yet, then the next one comes out, and we're all the way to 13, where we have, what, seven cameras attached to the phone now. Um, it just keeps getting better and better. And every time they come out with a new model, means that the other model was insufficient at some level. Like, like it could have been better. And that's the argument he's making. If, if, if the Levitical priesthood was perfect, we wouldn't need another priest. But if somebody comes along and says, we need a priest like Melchizedek, then that speaks something about the Levitical priesthood. And that's what we see when we look at Psalm 110, which I don't have time to go into all of this. I asked Tyler to maybe just put it on the screen just for reference. In this psalm, Psalm 110, we have David. And what's important to understand as we, as we look at this is that this hinges on understanding the sequence of things. That when David wrote this is hundreds of years after the establishment of the Levitical priesthood under the law. It comes after Sinai. So the priesthood has been up and running. It's been given. It's been going on for hundreds of years happening. This is what God said. This is what God set up. This is what God established. And yet David comes along it shares this psalm. As we understand it as a prophetic word speaking towards the Messiah, that this Lord will arise, this one who would be a king. A king would come who would, who would, who would crush all of his enemies, who would rule in righteousness and justice. And also what is declared about this one is that he would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So his argument is that when David comes along and speaks of a different priesthood to come, he's saying something about the current system. And he goes into kind of this complex argument to kind of unpack this even further. He says that then if you're going to mess with the priesthood, you're messing with the entire construct of the law. The whole law is basically undermined and changed if you're going to mess with the priesthood. Because the law establishes the rules for priests. It's all one package deal. And so he says this is shown to be true when this new priest comes from a different tribe. You see, all the other priests that came along, they had to be from Levi. Like You, you couldn't come from another tribe. You were disqualified immediately. But yet, Jesus didn't come from Levi. He came from Judah. So if, if Jesus is going to be a priest, he's already undermining the, the things laid out in the law. He also says that how he is appointed as a priest is different. The, the Levitical priests were put into their position based on legal requirements. They met certain standards and things laid out in the book of Leviticus, all those kind of complex things that are oftentimes boring for us to read. They had to meet those criteria. That's how they, they were put into, into their position as priests. But Jesus and Melchizedek, 
they become a priest not based on those things, but based on an indestructible, eternal life. And so, the prophecy in Psalm 110 of another priest to come in the order of Melchizedek and not in the line of Aaron is an announcement of the complete deficiency and the eventual replacement of the law and the Levitical priesthood. He's basically saying the the Mosaic law was a temporary fix. It was a band-aid on man's sinfulness. And Jesus comes in in the order of Melchizedek to rip off that band-aid and actually bring true healing And in doing so, the commandments of the law and that means of of, of gaining right standing before God is set aside because it says that it was weak and it was useless in verse 18. Because they couldn't make anything perfect. So he shows the deficiency of the political priesthood. Then in verses 20-24, to he establishes then the permanence of his office. He continues to contrast these types of priests, saying that the Levites were not appointed by a direct declaration of God, by an oath. They were put into their position based on their lineage and them meeting the right criteria. But Melchizedek, and the one to come after him in his order, is appointed by a declaration, by an oath of God. Now, we don't make oaths very often, right? And we maybe don't even trust the guys who do. You know, we have politicians and, and other leaders who you know, take an oath of office or whatever and, and commit to do something, and then we question whether they actually do that or not. So what is, what, why does it matter whether this was made with an oath or not, this priesthood? It's because the one who swore the oath was God Himself. This was highlighted back in chapter 6, that, that that is the greatest thing by which God can swear. It means that God's very character, His very nature stands behind this declaration. If God is who He says He is, then this is a permanent and lasting declaration. The need for a priest forever after the order, not of Aaron, but of Melchizedek. He says, because there was a fundamental flaw with the Levites, there was this one hiccup. They kept dying. As soon as you got a priest in there, knew what he was doing, could offer the sacrifice just right, had it going, everything was going smoothly, he died. Somebody else had to take his place. A constant pattern. They were prevented from continuing because, because they were just mere weak men. They would die. But Jesus holds His office forever. Thus, He can provide and secure an eternal salvation is His argument. And the last thing in verses 25 to 28 is that He proves the effectiveness of His service. His eternal standing as priest means that we never lose our intercessor. He's effective in His work because His is a perfect priesthood. He is a perfect priest. He is a holy one. He is the innocent one. He is the unstained, separated from sinners, one exalted above the heavens. And thus, He is fundamentally different from all the other priests because those priests had to offer sacrifices daily. And first, they had to offer them for themselves because they themselves were unclean. So you better hope that he did it right and covered himself first before he offers it for you. That's his argument. That's what he's saying. That this is a broken system because he had to do it over and over again because then even if, even if he did it correctly that day, he would go out and he would, 
he would sin again. And he had to come back, offer a sacrifice for himself and then for you. And the pattern would have to continue. But not Jesus. With him, it's fundamentally different because he offered up one perfect sacrifice, the offer of his own perfect life. The best that the law could do was to set forth weak men, but God's declaration appoints his son, the perfect and the effective priest for us. So I want to ask just the question as we, we try to finish up here. So what? Maybe those are neat Old Testament connections and kind of unpacking these little old, vague stories and, and drawing these things out and all. But the reality is that we honestly have a really hard time like, like resonating with the idea of a priesthood, right? With a priest. Like, like none of you were concerned about priests this week as you went to work. None of you were carrying your goat around this week looking for a Levite. Like so, so maybe in, in, in some sense, like, yeah, this might be really impactful for a first century Jew who's been doing this all their life. But for us, like, why does it even matter? You know, even our concept of a priest, what comes to mind, for, for many of us, maybe it's just this a guy in a black suit and a, and, a, and a white collar sitting in a creepy booth with a barrier where you go in and kind of just, you know, get some things off of your chest you know, share what you've done bad in a, in a safe place just to kind of make yourself feel better. Maybe that's the idea of a priest that you have. But why do we need a priest? It seems weird. Well, we need a priest for the same reason that Israel did. Verse 11, it says, if perfection had been attainable. Problem is, they weren't Perfect. They're trying to find a way to make themselves perfect. They needed a way to be declared perfect in order to enter into God's presence. And the reality is that, that none of us are perfect. We have the same problem. This word perfect speaks of completeness, of wholeness. We are broken. We are sinful. We are, to use Old Testament language, unclean. So what do we do with that? Well, the world has a way of trying to deal with that where they just kind of try to minimize it, right? It's like, yeah, of course, let's all just accept that nobody's perfect. And, you know, we're all trying to do better. Humanity just needs to kind of work on itself and we just need to kind of accept our failures and mistakes and learn from them and move on and we can just kind of grow together and, and become better in some sense. Sounds, sounds great, but there's a problem with that. The problem is that there is one who is perfect. There's a perfect, holy God who created us. Who stands in sovereign reign over this entire world and over our lives. One to which we are accountable. One to which we have thumbed our noses in rebellion and tried to create our own image of ourselves and how we want to live. And so, if we are going to recognize this God in His holiness, in His perfection, then that leaves us with a problem. That we either need a way to perfect ourselves or we need one who can intercede for us. That's why we need a priest. Why we need a true Melchizedek. 
And I think that we have people everywhere, and even our own tendency is to try to perfect ourselves. But if perfection could be achieved through any other means, then we wouldn't need Jesus. And many people are trying and running after all different ways to try to perfect themselves, to just maybe create an image of themselves that others will believe. We oftentimes just try to reshape things to to see ourselves in a different light and to see ourselves as better than we are. Oftentimes we recognize our imperfections and so we just try to lower the standard. We try to minimize the holiness of God. We, we, We think that God will somehow just kind of grade us on a curve. And if we're just kind of maybe better than most people, then we'll kind of be all right in the end. And so we'll turn to avenues of all sorts of self-help to improve us, to change who we are, to make ourselves better, or we'll create a new law, a new set of laws that, 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 that we think will make us good enough. But the reality is that all of our attempts at perfecting ourselves are just like the Mosaic Law. They're weak and useless in accomplishing that. And that is why we need a Melchizedekian priest. One who brings us a better hope. A better hope than our efforts. One through whom we can be declared perfect or declared righteous, declared just before a holy God. We need one through whom alone we can draw near to God. So maybe you are here and you you've been chasing that path of self-perfection and trying to trying to find the means to, to make yourself better than you are. The call of this text is to look to Jesus, the perfect high priest, the one who stands for you as your representative. And not just as your representative, but also the one who offers the perfect sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice of his own life in your place so that you can actually be accepted before this perfect holy God, even with all of your imperfections, even with all of our failures. It's a call to cast ourselves on this perfect priest. We also need a permanent priest. See, the Levitical priesthood and that whole system had to be exhausting, right? Every day, get up, get the goat, slit its throat, more blood. I hope he's wearing the right clothes today. Got to get the right priestly clothes on. Another, Another ceremony, another action, another sacrifice, more blood over and over and over again. The reality is that so many of us end up still doing the same thing. In our lives where we, when we fail, we fall, we feel like we have to atone for our own sins. We have to beat ourselves up. We have to feel guilty about our sins long enough to where maybe then we can come back to God. We can come back to church. We can come to His people. We have to pay for it ourselves. But we need a permanent priest. One who constantly stands saying, I've paid and atoned for all of it with a perfect sacrifice so you can stand in freedom. We need one that declares to us a better covenant. A concept we're going to get into in the coming weeks. We need a permanent priest who always serves as our intercessor. For when we fail, when we sin, one that is standing there for us. For this week, when I yell at my kids and I justify it as just kind of 
you know, exercising, you know, tough parenting, when I am inconsiderate and thoughtless of my wife and speak harshly to her. I need a Melchizedekian priest who stands there declaring that he has paid for that with his very blood. When you, this week, let your heart drift into discontentment, into jealousy, into anger at others, you need a Melchizedekian priest who's constantly there interceding for you with His perfect sacrifice covering and atoning your sin and your failures so that you can stand before your King. We need a permanent priesthood to declare to us amidst our doubts and our uncertainties that we are saved forever. That it's secured not based on what we can do, but by what He has done. And not only do we need the perfect and permanent priest, but we need a priest who is also our king. Throughout history, we've tried to keep kings and priests separate, and for good reason, right? Broken humanity, things can get really messy when those things are brought together, so we've kept those separate. We've had Rome and we've had the monarchy, we've had church and state separate. But only in Jesus do we see the perfect and the beautiful union of these two dimensions. That He is the perfect and righteous King of peace and He is the priest who stands in our place. I love the, I love the line in, in verse 26 where it says, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. And the image that just kept coming to mind is, is that of a puzzle. We've been trying to build some puzzles that we gave to, my, to our, our kids this year. And uh, I was never a big puzzle guy, but I'm sure we've all had the experience of building a puzzle and maybe getting down to the, to, the, to the end and you have one piece that's missing. It's not whole. It's not complete. It's so frustrating. Where is it? And you can't just go and, and find another box and open up another puzzle and, and find a piece and just kind of make it work. You can find one maybe that sort of is, is in there, but it's, it's not the right piece. It doesn't work. It doesn't fit. And throughout all of human history, we have searched for the perfect leader, for the perfect ruler, for our perfect representative. We've tried all sorts of ways of ruling this world, from kings and monarchies and dynasties to republics, to communism, to socialist regimes, and even anarchy has been tried. But we're trying to find that peace to complete the picture of the world that we want and that we long for, a picture of peace and righteousness. And that only comes together in Jesus, the perfect representative for humanity before a holy God. And it is indeed fitting that we should have such a one as this. Such a one as Jesus, who was holy, who was innocent, who is unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, and yet who steps down into our brokenness and steps down in our place to offer His perfect sacrifice of His life for us. And He stands forever as our intercessor, holding us and declaring us righteous before God. He alone is our true Melchizedek, the King of righteousness, the King of peace, and our eternal perfect priest 
who always lives to make intercession for us. So I hope you can rest this week in His perfect and His permanent priesthood. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this text. text that I've labored in this week, longing to see these glories and these truths. My heart has multiple times just been drawn to worship You for what You've done for us. That You would save sinners such as us. And so we declare together that You are our King and we thank You that You are our priest who has offered for us the perfect sacrifice so that we can be made perfect. Help us to live as Your people, transformed by the Gospel this week. Let us not go forth and try to perfect ourselves, but let's live as those who have been perfected by Jesus. And we ask this in His name alone. Amen.